Hey everybody, what's going on? What's happening? How was the weekend? All is well? Week off to a good start? Well, I hope it is, and I'm grateful and thankful that you've tuned in to the J Reels Podcast. As this is your host, J Reels. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome aboard, and if it's not, welcome back. I will bring you all that's going on the latest and greatest of the world of sports. This is what I do each and every week, whether it's talking about things that are happening on the diamond, on the gridiron, on the golf course, ice, hardwood, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the j Rose Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. Here on a Monday, July 23rd, New Year of Our Lord 2018, recording this at 10.30 a.m., and it gives me great pleasure to fill you in on what's happening in the world of sports as I look forward to delving into the hot topics of what's going on, especially here in the New York scene and beyond. And with lots to discuss over the course of the next, who knows, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, however long this may take, I'll be sure to deep deep dive on a lot of different issues that are uh, taking place, whether it's uh, the NFL, we'll touch on uh, Le'Veon Bell and his contract, we'll also touch on the NFL anthem situation, which seems to be going haywire. I mean, they never seem to come to any sort of agreement with this, and I have, people, I have the final analysis and the breakdown as to what they should do with the Santa thing once and for all and stop prolonging this mess for years to come. It seems like it's going on forever. Uh, I'll also recap the uh, Kawhi Leonard trade, which happened just a few hours after I recorded my last podcast, and also discuss a uh, destination for Carmelo Anthony. The British Open yesterday, where it was a thriller out there in uh, Scotland. I'll uh, get into that a little bit. But we'll start off with the baseball and first up will be the Subway Series recap. Now, they had a rainout last night, which will be made up, I believe, August 13th. So it's a Monday where both teams are off. They'll uh, reschedule that game at Yankee Stadium, I'm sure, 7.05, uh, which would be now, what, one, two weeks from tonight. Uh, one, two, no, it's actually three weeks from tonight. So we'll get to the final installment of the Subway Series then. The first two games of the series were pretty much mirror images for each of the local teams as they split. In the first game, the Mets uh, pretty much ambushed to a uh, 4 nothing lead, 3 in the first, and then Cespedes hits that home run in the fourth. And a lot to talk about Ioannis uh, in a few minutes, but with the Mets getting off to a pretty big lead, up 6-1 at one point, Yankees started the chip away, Mets hang on, they win 7-5. Syndergaard gets the win, and we'll talk about Noah Syndergaard too in a little bit. Uh, he only pitched five innings, wasn't really that effective, reason being... He gets this illness that just all of a sudden must have come within the last 48 hours uh, due to a an event that he was at last week where he was at a clinic teaching kids, I guess, on how to pitch. And sure enough, he contracted this hand, mouth, and foot disease, which there seems to be no name of. Uh, so that put Syndergaard not only on the shelf for the rest of the game on Friday night, but he'll be on the DL, probably just missed one start. That's good, but I'll get to more of that in a little bit. And then when you look at how the game ended on Friday night, with Gazelman pitching two innings after Lugo pitched two innings to complement the five innings that were pitched by Noah Syndergaard, the first thing I thought of was, okay, if Familia's not in this ninth inning, something's going on. And the first thing you start thinking about is trade. And sure enough, lo and behold, Jeru's Familia gets traded to the Oakland A's, which that also caused another controversy. So much to get into with this Met team. I feel like that's all I talk about each and every week when it's talking, you know, whether it's the GMs, whether it's the manager, whether it's some of the players, whether it's the owners. It's one big soap opera, but we're going to get to all that 
All right, let me just wrap up this Subway Series recap, put that to bed, and then we'll get into the uh, nitty-gritty of this Mets situation. As far as game one, so 7-5, Mets pulled it out. They hang on, win the game. Yankees pretty much did the same thing after a Conforto home run that made it one nothing. Yankees then scored four runs of their own, even though the Mets chipped away, but the Mets, or, uh, or I should say the Yankees, were pretty much in control after that. They were up 6-3. Then 7-3, and then the late barrage there in the ninth inning where they had base loaded nobody out. They scored three runs, uh, gifted one of them by, you know, an error from uh, David Robertson. So you're thinking, could somehow, some way, the Mets pull this off? Again, Cespedes was not in the lineup due to the, an injury situation that nobody saw coming, considering it was his first game back Friday night, which he had a couple of hits, including the aforementioned home run uh, in the third inning of that game. So now you have a 7-6 game. Runner on third, two outs. They can't get the runner home. They lose 7-6. So, again, Mets, big lead on Friday night, hang on the win late. Yankees, big lead Saturday afternoon, hang on the win late. And then you had the washout yesterday. But that wasn't the big story or stories of the weekend. And if you listen to my last podcast, I said if you're a Mets fan, the last thing that you want to happen, and there were three words, is don't get embarrassed. And I will say this, in the five Subway Series games that they played so far, the Mets have actually played pretty well. Now, granted, they've only won two of the five with the sixth game to be determined in three weeks. But they have not gotten embarrassed. Their starting pitching has not been beaten up. Their bullpen hasn't been beaten up. And they've pretty much been in every one of these games. So give them credit for that. And coming into this weekend, although the pitching matchups favored the Mets – you still, with this Yankee team, you still don't know when that offensive juggernaut is going to wake up. And even though they started the chip away there on Friday and you kind of wondered in the back of your mind, like, oh boy, here comes one of those late Yankee classic rallies that's just going to break the Met fans' hearts. But be that as it may, it did not happen. And then in reverse, surprisingly, with the Met offense waking up there late in the game on Saturday, Although falling short, but you think to yourself, all right, well, hey, so far so good. The Mets haven't gotten embarrassed. But it's the off the field stuff. And it starts Friday night because after the game, when they're interviewing Mickey Calloway, and it was brought to his attention about Yoannis Cespedes' heels, which is causing a lot of his, whether it's hip, quad, legs, what, whatever it is from his lower extremities, what's been causing all this commotion here over the last couple of years. And by golly, what does he say? That he had no clue about any of these injuries or especially the heels that have been bothering Ioannis Cespedes for the last 15 years. He looked around to say, hey, I don't have an answer for that. And if you're Ioannis Cespedes, and there's a lot to blame for all these things that I'm about to mention. I'm going to start with the injury and work my way down. Now, why is it that Ioannis Cespedes, who has had these leg injuries, over the last couple of years. And he's been dealing with these heel injuries. He says for 15 years. And that if he were to get surgery. It's going to take 8 to 10 months. To recover. Why hasn't he gone into the knife yet. For surgery. To get this thing taken care of. And listen. The Met. Brass. And their doctors. They're only going to know but so much. The first thing I ask is that. Does any of the Met doctors know about his injury. Prior to. Cespedes announcing that he has this problem. 
And if so, why wasn't this brought to the forefront before? Considering that Cespedes, who had been on this nine-week odyssey to God knows where, we all know that he was in St. Lucie, now that I think about it, the last, I guess, 10 days or so prior to him coming back off the disabled list. But it made you think and believe that, well, Cespedes is probably somewhere in the country, somewhere on the planet. He's rehabbing somewhere, and he's doing fine. And therefore, well, whenever he shows up, then, okay, great. We'll just put him in the lineup, and that's it. So the first thing I think of is that if he's had this problem since he's came in, come into the league, and I guess over time it's going to flare up. And remember, Cespedes is, what, 32 years old? So we don't know how young those legs really are. If they are 32, are they 37? And I'm not talking about his age here. I'm just talking about the beating that his legs have taken over the years that obviously he has these calcium deposits in his heels, which caused this pain. And after his last at-bat on Friday night, when he was walking into the dugout and Callaway noticed and looked at him and pretty much he said that they were on fire, both of his heels. So to start with Cespedes, then why hasn't this been mentioned before? Why couldn't he say at the end of last season that, you know what, part of the reason why I have these injuries is because of my heels. So therefore it could have been cleaned up then. He's already got his money. It's not as if he's walking into a big payday where he could say, well, you know what, let me just stay on the hush, try to get my money, and then deal with it afterwards, which isn't right. But you know what? If that's his logic, if that's what he's thinking, if he wants to make sure he gets that big contract that you know that he's been waiting for, then fine. But remember, he signed that two years ago. So now you have a situation where your biggest offensive player that the Mets can ill afford to lose at any point throughout this contract. And we all know how much time he's missed in the last two years. Now they have this situation where they may be contemplating surgery. Cespedes' camp. How could you even contemplate that now knowing that this has been out there and that you put it out there? This thing needs to get taken care of pronto. Because if this is 8 to 10 months, and let's say it's July 23rd, let's say August 1st. So now you're doing September... At the earliest, you're coming back April 1st. That's eight months. Ten months, now you're looking at June. So, what are you going to do here? Yoannis, I mean, and not only that, now let's transfer that to the Met Brass. Their doctors now need to get involved. If they haven't gotten involved already, which would be an absolute joke, but then again, that'd be the Mets anyway. Because their doctors, I can see it right now, they're probably talking amongst each other and with Jeff Wilpon to say, oh, what should we do? Should we evaluate? Should we... They should have pounded down that door Friday night and gotten those doctors into his locker, carried him all the way to the hospital and getting him checked out and see what the deal is. I mean, don't you think? So now you have a situation where Cespedes, as we know, has not been happy by some of the comments that were made, especially when Sandy was the GM, pretty much questioning his return or how healthy he really is. And who knows what ownership is, if there's any whispers behind private doors where, you know, they're starting to get fed up with Ioannis' uh, act. So Ioannis is saying, hey, I'm I'm just going on my time. When I'm ready, I'm ready. That's it. I don't care what they tell me. So to me, there's another layer to that that we don't know about. And who knows, I'm sure maybe in time it will come out. So now you have Cespedes. Is he going to... Now say, uh-uh, I'm going to get surgery when I want to get surgery? 
and have his people, doctors, the agents, whatever, butt in to say, uh-uh, we're going to do this on our time, on our dime. Well, maybe not their dime, but you know, just based on their counsel from their people on whether or not he should get the surgery. Or the Mets ownership in particular, and the doctor is going to step in to say, hey, this needs to get taken care of right away. We need to evaluate you. We need to make sure that moving forward, that if it is a an injury that's going to take anywhere up to eight to 10 months to recover, then we need to get cracking on this now. Because why waste any more time? You still have two more years left on this contract. And if you're a Met fan, especially, but if you're the Met brass, knowing that you got to pay this man $27 million in the next two years, don't you think that you want to get this guy on the table, operated, clean whatever it is that needs to be cleaned up in his in his heels and start rehab to get ready for 2019 and God willing, 2020? So Cespedes, I understand he may be a little bit bitter about everything that's transpired, but you know what? Today's July 23rd. You can't look at what was said back in May or June or even last week. You know, you're talking about your baseball future here. And not only that, but you're also talking about your own integrity. Because if you're going to let a few words, and I understand that they may hurt, and you may feel, not going to go as far as saying being betrayed, but if they feel that they're knocking a little bit of your character, well, you know what? Hey, man, look in the mirror. Take a good look and see why that's the case. Could you have been back six weeks earlier? Could you have been back two weeks earlier? Or if you know you have these barking heels, then why say something after the game, your first game back where you had a very productive game, and then now you're going to be back on the shelf again, chances are for the rest of the year. And if you're the Mets, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. You've got to shut them down. So that's number one, or embarrassment number one. Now number two, as I mentioned, Friday night, when you didn't see Familiar in the ninth inning, you kind of wondered, okay, something's wrong here. Why isn't he pitching? What's happening? So we find out that he's going to Oakland, to the A's, for two guys that the first thing people, of course, looked at were, okay, what are these prospects? What are these players that are going to be brought back here that are hopefully, when you look at Familiar, a guy who's going to be a free agent at the end of the year, and knowing that he's been a very productive reliever throughout his tenure here with the Mets, despite the fact that we all know his postseasons, especially the World Series and obviously in the wildcard game against the Giants. But people, including myself, and rightfully so, the Met fan that looks and says, all right, we have two chips that we could trade here. One is a Dru- as Drupal Cabrera, where we could get something back for him. Can we get a top prospect? Probably not. Can we get somewhere in the middle? Why not? We could ask for it. Let's try to shoot for the moon and the stars. And if we can't get that and we can only get the sun, then guess what? It's still a victory, right? Okay, but you figure familiar even more so because he's younger. He's still a productive uh, reliever. And despite the fact that he is in a walk year, hey, let's go back to 2011 when Sandy Alderson traded Carlos Beltran, who was in the last year of a contract, was a rental when they traded him to San Francisco for Zach Wheeler, and the reason why they got Zach Wheeler was because the Mets took on the rest of the salary for that year. Therefore, it netted them back a higher prospect. Whereas if they said, uh-uh, we're not paying the rest of Beltron's contract, well, the rest of that season, San Francisco had the right to say, all right, well, we're not going to give you our top pitching prospect. We're going to give you this pitching prospect. And rightfully so. That's how you look at it, right? Okay, well, now here's the deal. 
So now the Mets make this trade. They traded for a guy named Will Toffey, who's a third baseman, and a reliever, Bobby Wall, who a lot of people think that when you look at his numbers, they're actually pretty good. Throws hard, strikes out a lot of guys. But here's my thing. The guy's 26 years old. Shouldn't he be in the majors already? And I understand Oakland's having a very good year, and Oakland, as we all know, they're the money ball team. You know, dating back to the days when Sandy Alderson was part of that organization, going back, now I'm not going to say late 80s, because of course those are the Bass Brothers, Bruce Brothers, whatever you want to call them, with McGuire and Conseco, but moving forward after that, pretty much set the blueprint for what Moneyball is. So now, they get a guy in Toffee who's a third baseman. He's Oakland's 17th-ranked prospect. And I know a lot of Met fans were in, they were in uproar, irate, knowing that, wait a minute, why were we only able to get back a guy who's a 17th ranked prospect and a pitcher that, all right, he may throw hard and he does, you know, strike out a lot of people, but he's 26 years old. Okay, and wow, they also get a million dollars in international pool money, which of course could help. And listen, I don't know much about the international pool money market or, you know, what goes into that. I need to educate myself on that a little bit more, but I could see, hey, if it was $2 million, $3 million, $5 million, I could say, all right, well, hey, that's a little bit more money than a million. I mean, how much is that going to net you to get a top prospect? Well, you got teams like the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Dodgers, the Yankees that I'm sure they'll probably say, all right, well, here's $5 million. Let's get this 17-year-old pitcher from the Dominican or an 18-year-old outfielder from Venezuela or 16-year-old from wherever. So now people are outraged. And when I looked at this deal, I said, I know why the Mets got a 17th-ranked prospect in this kid, Will Toffee. It's because, A, I'm sure the Mets didn't ask high. They didn't say, hey, let's start with your fifth-ranked prospect. We know we're not going to get you in one, two, and three, so let's start with five and go down. Although John Rico said that they had their eyes on a guy like Will Toffee for quite some time, so this was the guy that we wanted to target. And the pitcher Bobby Wall as well. All right, but can you still even go up a little bit higher than 17? Maybe can you have gone six, can five? I'm sure there's another pitcher, whether it's uh, you know, a starter, reliever, or maybe another prospect. You, you also use outfield help as well. I understand you need a third baseman, but the Mets need everything. So even if you had a top-flight outfielder, a prospect that you could bring back, uh, don't you think you would go that route just as much? But to my point, because Familia is going to be a rental, and obviously Oakland's smart enough to know not to probably give up any of their top prospects, but then you have the upset Met fan that look at what the Cleveland Indians did when they traded for Brad Hand, and it got them a top catching prospect, who I believe was like fifth in their, uh, I don't know what, the, I forgot what their ranking was, but he was one of the top five prospects in the Indian organization. Well, that's simple. Brad Hand signed a three-year, $19 million deal before the start of the season. So for a guy who's a middle or late-inning reliever, not really a closer, but a guy, oh, and he has closed this year, don't get me wrong, but a guy who can be an eighth-inning or even a, ni- or a closer, who's getting paid roughly, whatever it is, $6.5 million a year for the rest of this year and two years after that, of course it's going to net them a top prospect because the guy's not going to walk at the end of the year. 
There's your answer, guys. And if it was a thing where the Mets, John Rickle in particular, if it was a thing where the Mets, if they even had their eyes on this particular guy, can't they still have gone up a little bit higher? Can't they still say, well, hey, maybe they have a second baseman, maybe they have a first baseman, maybe they have a center fielder, or maybe they have a catching prospect. Oh, God forbid, considering that the Indians traded away their best catching prospect over to San Diego. Because like I said, the Mets need everything. So of course, when I first read about the trade, I wasn't happy, but I can understand why. And you can't compare the Brad Hand trade and what they got to what the Mets got. But when you do see 17th ranked prospect, that bothers you. Because that was like the due to trade last year when they got the kid, what's his name, Drew Smith? I can't even think of his name right now. What was he? He was the raised 30th ranked prospect. I mean, 30th ranked? Uh, listen, I understand Lucas Duda isn't uh, Lou Gehrig, but at the same time, 30th ranked prospect? But again, it goes back to the embarrassment of the organization. Instead of asking high, they ask for whatever it is that they target, and they seem to settle for it. And who knows what's going to happen with Cabrera here over the next eight days, because Cabrera is a guy that you could certainly trade to a contender, and again, we understand his age. We understand walk year. We know we're not going to get a ton for, for, you know, for the guy. But at the same time, if you're Rico, forget about who you have your eyes on. I would say, even for Cabrera, let's start at five and work our way down. Because obviously, if you're going to go for any team's top prospect, you're just going to hang up the phone. So if you start at five and work your way down, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what position it is. I'm sorry, even if it's a shortstop, even with Rosario there. Who cares? Bring that guy in. Move Rosario to third if you have to. Move Rosario to second if you have to. The guy's a good you know, prospect and can play short, and you read and hear, see, whatever, a lot of good things about the kid. So what? Bring him in. Just because you have Rosario there, oh, no, we're not going to go for a shortstop. And you guys need to send a fielder. So even if you have Cespedes coming back next year, we'll see how that goes, and you put Conforto and or Nimmo in right, well, guess what? Throw somebody in center. And then people can say, well, wait, Jay Reels, but if you're already going to play Nemo every day in center field and you put Conforto in right, yeah, I understand that. But again, you're trying to stockpile talent. And if you somehow get a diamond in the rough where you get a guy who is a fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth top prospect and it happens to be an outfielder, and then he comes into camp next year and he lights it up, then what are you going to say? That's a good problem to have. Mets don't have those good problems. All the Mets have are problems. And they're generally Brad. And as far as Noah's concerned, I was at the game Friday night and you know, he gave a bait hits, which is a lot for him. You know, usually he his whip is very good. And I get that he had more than a week off, or he had exactly a week off because he pitched last the Friday before against the Nationals. And j- just from what I saw from my vantage point, he just didn't seem to be right. And as it was pointed out from what I all the reports read, that his velocity started to go down from the first inning, whether it was his fastball, even his sinker. Then it came to a point that when they got onto the mound, I never forget in that fifth inning, I'm thinking to myself, oh, geez, what's, what's going on now? You know, don't tell me that finger issue that he had for most of the first, whatever it is, two months of the season is starting to act up on him, and there we go, he's on the shelf for the rest of the year. But no, it just so happened that he started getting the, you know, the shakes, he started getting these blisters on his hands, and just like I mentioned earlier, he was at a kids camp 
the day before the Subway series began and somehow, someway caught this virus where not only did it affect his hands, but also his feet and his mouth. And even with the reports, they don't even know what the, the, this disease is. They say it can be treated, that he'll be able to not make his next start, which would be Wednesday, but with the rain out yesterday, it probably would have been pushed up. But chances are he's going to miss this next start. And he's going to absolutely miss this next start because he's on the 10-day DL. So he'll probably make his next start after that. We could only hope and pray that that's the case because the Mets cannot get out of their own way. I mean, this is just a disaster upon disaster upon disaster. I mean, you really can't make any of this up. I mean, what's next? What is next? God forbid something happens to Jacob DeGrom. Well, he's going to sneeze and then, you know, he gets his migraine and now he's he's on the shelf for uh, two months. All I could say is this, and I've said it time and time again. The Met brass, the top of this food chain here. Jeff, not so much Fred, but I'm just going to do this is all on Jeff Wilpon. He needs to come out, say something about this organization, and just hold himself accountable. And I understand. I've said this on past podcasts. I understand he's not the type to be in front of a microphone, to be the guy, to have a state of a union. I understand that. But you know what? Your fan base right now is rabid. Your fan base is at wit's end. Your fan base wants to hear the owner come out and be accountable for how disastrous the season has been. And I don't want to hear excuses. I don't want to hear that this team has just had a stroke of bad luck. Has it been bad luck? Absolutely. But it's beyond that. It's been the choice of the manager. It's been the situation with now the three-headed monster of the GMs. And I don't trust John Rickle to save my life. I mean, or save anybody's life for that matter. And there are reports that they're going to go outside the organization after this year and bring in a GM, which would be fantastic. And that's music to the Met fans' ears. All these things that need to be addressed, all you got to do is just one time. Don't wait till the end of the year. Don't wait till all the dust settles and you 67 and 95 and you just had one of the you know worst years in the franchise's history and then for you to answer those questions then. Man up. Get to the microphone now, address it, and it's over with. And that's it, starting with you. I know it's not going to happen. I'm certainly not going to hold my breath. But it's just, it just seems like it's ongoing day after day after day with this organization, with health, with the manager, with the GMs, with these trades, with, with everything. I mean, it just doesn't stop. And to think we got eight days until the trade deadline, so we can only imagine what's going to happen between now and then. Watch the Mets will try to play tonight, and it's been raining the last couple days. Chances are the game may get rained out. Watch Cabrera will slide into third tonight, pull a hammy, and that's it. There goes that trade option. I tell you, it's... I don't know what else more to say. I just don't. You really... It's a loss of words when it comes to this Met team because you look at all the other organizations in baseball, have they even had a quarter of what the Mets have had? And I'm not trying to say this as a woe is me as a Met fan. No, I'm being real. 
Now, the Nationals, we know that they've had their own problems, but right, you know, Strasburg and Scherzer the other night in a dugout where they had to go underneath and hash out whatever differences that they had, but it just seems like on a day-to-day basis, this soap opera just never ends. And now, let's see. They got San Diego here for three this week, and then they go to Pittsburgh for four over the weekend. And if you're a Yankee fan, uh, listen, you're just waiting to see who you're going to bring in here as far as a starting pitcher or a reliever because the Yankees do need a left-handed reliever. And we all know about their starting pitching is concerned. And besides that, I mean, what else do they need to tinker with? Nothing. They just can't seem to catch the Red Sox because the Red Sox just keep rolling. They're 70 and 31 as of right now. 70 and 31. So the Yankees have that to contend with here as we continue to get deeper into summer and play out this baseball season. All right, on to the British Open, which was a thriller out there in Scotland where you had a guy that came back from the past, roaring, like the man who once did, especially on a Sunday, the guy with the black hat and the red shirt. Yes, Eldrick Tiger Woods was in the mix. And to think that on after the 10th hole yesterday, that he actually had the sole lead going into a major where a lot of people think that he may never, ever win a major again. As we all know, his last major was the U.S. Open back in 2008, so it's been more than 10 years since he's been able to capture that elusive 15th major. And for a second there yesterday, a lot of people were thinking, despite the fact that it, there were still seven hole, uh, eight holes to go, and we know that the Tiger today, certainly not the Tiger of yesteryear, where a lot of people, a lot of those players would have been shaking in their boots, knowing that the Tiger is certainly on his way to dominate and, of course, intimidate to another championship. But it wasn't to be in the cards. In fact, yesterday you had a crazy leaderboard where you had five golfers at the top shooting six under, uh, that which included Rory McIlroy, also Jordan Spieth, Justin Rose is in the mix. But you're a winner of the British Open yesterday. For the first time in history, an Italian won in Francesco Molinari, who was able to capture that uh, first major and, of course, first British Open. But all the speculation and all the talk has been Tiger, especially going into the U.S. Open, which will take place, or excuse me, the PGA, U.S. Open was last month, hello. The uh, PGA next month, which is going to take place in Missouri, starting on uh, Thursday, August the 9th. They actually have Tiger favored 16-1, to fourth in line. Of course, you know, you have your usuals up at the top, the Jordan Speeds of the world, the uh, Dustin Johnsons, you know, golfers like that that are usually at the top of the charts when it comes to being a favorite winning any golf tournament, especially a major. So you got to wonder what kind of momentum is this going to mean moving forward for Tiger that in three weeks he's going to get another crack at trying to get that 15th major. And, you know, who knows? You know, for so long we've looked at Tiger, whether it's, you know, Bay Hill, you know, some of these other tournaments that he's may have won in the past where you kind of think that, oh, okay, well, maybe he's on the cusp of winning that major that so for so long that he's been trying to capture and has been eluding him with everything that has transpired throughout his life over the course of the, the last decade. But as we get closer to it, and we'll I'll monitor it a lot more 
Because Tiger, as much as he's a sympathetic figure or even empathetic figure at this point, that a lot of people are looking to root for him. As we all know, in this country, when you're riding high and you're flying and you're at the top of that food chain and what you do, and you're going to get all the praise and all the accolades that the minute something happens, whether it's a controversy or and not to go through the whole laundry list of things that he's been through ever since. But, of course, he gets knocked down not a peg or two. He gets knocked down about 15 levels. And a lot of it deserved and rightfully so. But for him to start creeping up that ladder little by little, that's where we like to see that underdog, the guy who was the favorite for so long, and now that he is the underdog amongst these golfers that I mentioned, that they want to get that one last glimmer of hope, that one last shining moment, if it is one last shining moment, because who knows? And a lot of that focus is going to be on Tiger over the course of the next three weeks. And a lot of that momentum, you kind of wonder, how is that going to build up for him? Because remember, as tough as his mental game was back then, and not to say it isn't as much so now, but... Because of everything that has transpired, you got to wonder, has he become a lot more fragile? And not just from a physical standpoint, because we all feel that now he's probably as healthy as he's been in quite some time. But right, the Tiger you saw yesterday who had that one-stroke lead going into the 11th hole, if that was 15 years ago, please, the, the rest of the field might as well just would have packed up their golf clubs and gone home. But now that's not the case. So it's a different mental approach for Tiger now. And unless he has a two, three-stroke lead with you know five holes or six holes to go, then you could kind of look at that and say, all right, well, Tiger's probably got him where he, where he wants him. But at the same time, we haven't seen Tiger in that spot yet. And yesterday was the closest that you ever gotten to see Tiger on that big stage at a major lead an event that late. And, you know, he fell up short. And you wonder if that's going to be the recipe that he needed in order for him to get over that hump. And think about it. He's got three weeks to redeem himself in that regard. So it's not like this was the last major of the year where he's got to wait till April of next year at the Masters to kind of show the world that, hey, he's back. And do I think he's back? It's hard to tell. It really is. I mean, I haven't watched one shot over the weekend, and I read a lot about what happened with Tiger. You'd want to say that he's back, but again, what's between his ears at this point? I'm sure that cold-blooded assassin is somewhere still inside of him, but it didn't rear its proverbial ugly head yesterday. You know, even with the red and the and the black hat, it doesn't seem as intimidating as he once was when he was at the peak of his powers. And now we all want to know, is Tiger that close? Is Tiger back to the point where he's going to be in contention for not just tournaments, but for major championships? I don't know. Because I could see it now, three weeks from now, going into Saturday, yeah, he made the cut, but he's nowhere to be found as far as the leaderboard's concerned. And I'm not going to be the one standing here to say, oh, yeah, no, he's definitely back. Just watch. You see. I'm not ready to push any of the chips to my middle of my table, let alone all of them, to say, yeah, I think Tiger's primed for a 
big PGA out Missouri. So we got that to hang our hat on, which is fascinating because we all know what he's been through. We all know what's happened in his life, unfortunately. And not only that, but also all the injuries, the knees, the backs, the everything that's happened. And now that there is some semblance of health with Tiger, you kind of have to say that he, rightfully so, could be in the mix to win this next major. I still have to see it in order to believe it. But it certainly makes for juicy headlines and juicy storylines going into that weekend. And the good thing is it's only three weeks away. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. A couple other things before we wrap up. NBA, last week I know just as I pretty much posted the episode 19, the Kawhi-Leonard trade went down where Kawhi, as we all know, if you've been hiding under a rock for the last week, was traded from San Antonio to Toronto for DeMar DeRozan. Uh, that was pretty much the deal. I know there was a couple of the players. Danny Green was sent from San Antonio to Toronto. But the main pieces are Leonard and DeRozan. And from the surface, although Toronto's become a pretty good basketball town over the last few years, it's still a very risky trade from the standpoint of Kawhi potentially leaving at the end of this year to go to L.A. Now, I understand people want to compare Kawhi to a certain extent with maybe Paul George because everybody thought when Paul George was in Indiana before he got traded to Oklahoma City that a lot of people thought, and pretty much from what he said, not even just people thinking, but from what Paul George said that I'm going to explore free agency, I want to go back to L.A. And what happened? He re-signed with Oklahoma City and he's there for the next four years. Could this be the same situation with Kawhi Leonard? We don't know. We don't know what's going on between his ears. It makes you wonder whether or not Toronto will be a city that he could look at that will embrace him, that will say, hey, Kawhi, you're our guy. We want you to stick around. We want you to stay here. Our team can't make a championship or can't make a run to a championship. Uh, Who knows? We know he'll get more money if he stays in Toronto than if he would go to L.A., but again... The likelihood of him going west after next year, I would say the chances are high. And I get that if you're Toronto, you unload the next three years of DeMar DeRozan's contract, which is, I believe, at like $23 million a year. So even if Kawhi were to leave and go out west or go anywhere for that matter, they would still have plenty of money to sign another max free agent. Now, it's just a matter of getting him up there. That's the <laughs> that's the other story. So, despite the fact that this trade maybe works in better favor for Toronto because of, you have Kawhi for one year who, he needs to prove himself again. I'm sorry. After last year, nine games, the injury, he's got to come back on first team all NBA mode if he's even thinking about getting that major payday and to kind of get that swag and his leverage back. Because if that doesn't come back, then he's going to be done. And I'm not saying he's going to be done from the league or he's done as a player, but nobody's going to put a lot of faith, a lot of stock in what he says and what he does if he's going to have a lackluster year. So that's why he has to go full, as I said, first-team all-NBA mode 
in order for GMs and executives to believe that, oh, this guy is worth the money and not only that, but worth putting all our chips on this guy to try to bring us a championship. So I look at the scenario if you're a Toronto Raptor fan or you root for Toronto that although this may be boom or bust, but there is a silver lining. Because if Kawhi does stay, then great. If he does leave, then we do have money to sign somebody else next offseason. Now, off the top of my head, who are those players? Of course, I don't know, but I know the salary cap's going to go up a little bit. I'm sure there's going to be a couple guys there on the market that I'm sure they could bring up there. Where San Antonio, they have a guy in DeMar DeRozan that I think will help fresh start under Coach Pop. He's 29 years old, so he's a little younger than the, the Marcus Aldridge's of the world, the Pau Gasol's, you know, guys like that. And who knows, maybe the change of scenery will do him some good from a standpoint of, all right, he didn't get away from LeBron because now LeBron's in L.A., so he's going to see him four times a year. But you figure that, hey, new team, new outlook. I'm sure Pop is going to tell him, hey, here are the keys. You're going to be driving. How are you going to take this team to the promised land? How are you going to take this team to a postseason? How are you going to take this team deep into a playoffs? And I'm sure that's what Pop's going to preach them. Because even though LaMarcus Aldridge has been there for quite some time, and we all know who you know the cast of characters there in San Antonio, but with DeRozan there in the mix for another three years, you would think that he's going to more likely be the guy. And as far as Carmelo is concerned, now this trade with the Hawks that took place where Dennis Schrader was going back the other way to Oklahoma City. Now, if you're Carmelo and once the Hawks wave you, I understand Houston is probably going to be the team he's going to go to. Although the Miami Heat are drawing some interest, which, you know, good for them, and that's Pat Riley for you. But I always felt that if the best place for him to go would be Philadelphia. And I don't know what Philadelphia's money situation is. I understand that they'd have to get rid of uh, Robert Covington. But Carmelo, I think, would be a better fit there because you have your better chance of having Carmelo just play the wing, just either post up or better yet, just have him play the perimeter, chuck threes all day. You know, he doesn't have that explosiveness that he once had. He could still get a shot off one-on-one. But again, Melo at this stage of his career is more of a shooter. Danny is a guy that's going to create his own shot. And I understand you can still post up. He still has that big body. You can back down some players. They don't really have a lot of shooters other than J.J. Redick. But I think Carmelo would just be a better fit there. If he goes to Houston, it's pretty much going to incorporate the same situation that he had in Oklahoma City. We have two guys that are going to handle the ball most of the time. And then he's going to be third banana behind James Harden and Chris Paul, but I know Chris Paul's his buddy. That's a better chance for him to win a title. Man, God bless him. And I certainly couldn't knock him for doing that. So the Carmelo situation, that's also going to be fascinating here as the NBA free agency starting to wind down, you know, free agency trades, transactions, things of that nature, starting to slowly but surely dwindle down so we could focus on other things. And more likely football, which I'll 
segue to right now before I say goodbye. Now, training camps open up, I believe some of them even open up as early as today, which I certainly don't want to see. I mean, listen, of course, life goes on. It's going to happen. But whenever you hear football, and especially when you hear the Hall of Fame game, uh, that means summer is starting to come to a close. And I understand we're officially a little bit over one month into summer, so there's still two months to go. But really, once you get to Labor Day, that's it. It's done. And when you're in the Northeast like we are, you can forget it. So with the... NFL and training camps open up. I'm sure you're going to hear the, all the different storylines, players, the Andrew Lux of the world trying to come back, and all the rookies that are uh, coming into the mix, and Tom Brady, and whatever it may be. But here are my few things that I need to discuss with the NFL. I'll start off with Darrell Revis, who announced his retirement the other day, and good for him. He's had a Hall of Fame career. He should be going in as a Jet. I mean, he played one year in Tampa, one year in New England, and half of last year in Kansas City, which certainly you saw all the warts with Darrell Revis then. If you didn't see him with his second tenure as the Jet cornerback, uh, and that second tenure was certainly tough because the Jet fans are well aware of what Darrell Revis did do. We all know Revis Island, what he did against certain wide receivers throughout the course of his tenure, his first time around there, and then the second time he was just having wide receivers just run right past him as if he was standing still. But not to throw cold water on the man because he has had an excellent career. He's had an all-pro career. He's had a Hall of Fame career. And I'm sure the Jet fans, despite the fact it stings a little that he won a Super Bowl in New England and that he wasn't able to fulfill his whole career there because, let's face it, Darrell Revis was a very smart businessman and knowing that he was a top corner and wanted to get paid like a top corner. Remember he held out in 2010 and showed his worth then. Then just three years later, got traded to Tampa, got his money for that one year. Didn't have a great year or a Darrell Revis type year, but then went to New England and under that scheme, Flores played well, won a Super Bowl, and then came back to New York and we we know the whole deal. But this is more to, not here to knock him by any stretch of imagination. We know the trajectory of his career and what it is and what it's all about, but hey, I just got to speak the truth and just call it as I see it. But now I'm sure there'll be a day for him. Five years from now, he'll get the call to Canton. And I would say probably in a year or two, the jersey will be retired, ring of honor for the Jets, the whole nine. And, you know, just had a great career. It's amazing how fast it went. It seemed like he was drafted five minutes ago, and now here it is after 10 years, you know, calling it quits. So all the best to him on his uh, next endeavors in life. And speaking of endeavors, and I'm sure looking at his next football life, or his next stop in his football life is Le'Veon Bell. And I haven't talked much about football, as we know, considering I started the podcast in March. Yeah, we had talked a little bit NFL draft there in late April, but a lot of people know I'm a huge Steeler fan, and I understand he wanted to go into the season with that contract. He wanted to retire a Steeler. Steelers offered him five years, $70 million, and even that wasn't enough. He wanted to get paid top. He was looking more 16 a year. Well, the Steelers gave him a great offer. He's going to play out this last year. Obviously, he's been franchised. And this is going to be it. But if I'm Le'Veon Bell, and if I'm the Steelers, I'm not going to say I'm going to wear this guy down until you know, the wheels fall off. And you could, of course, look at it that way if you're a Steelers fan. But if you're Le'Veon Bell, not only you should go into the season starting in training camp. And right, who am I to tell him that? 
But I would go into training camp. You have a contract. You are getting paid. It's not like you don't have a contract and you're not getting paid one thin dime. I would go in there from the start because we all know he got up to that slow start in Pittsburgh last year because he waited pretty much until the last minute to show up. And I don't care how many sprints, I don't care how much you work out, how much you train down in Miami or wherever you're training, and that you could show up in Pittsburgh four days before the opener and be in the best shape of your life. Uh Uh-uh. You got to get those reps, baby. You got to get those game reps because you can replicate that on a beach somewhere in South Beach. You can replicate that on a backfield somewhere in Miami or whatever it may be. You got to know that this is it. You got to know that if you want to go to a Super Bowl, if you want to be able to get that brass ring and know that this is your last go around with this team, then you should be there from day one. And even his own teammate Antonio Brown has said that. And Antonio Brown is one of the voices of this team. And I understand sometimes you can't take him seriously for the things he does on the field, but still, he's a guy that has all pro pedigree. I understand he hasn't won anything. I get that. But you know what? If he's speaking and he's saying, hey, man, we need you from day one, dog. Let's show up. Then guess what? Make this year be your best year. And you know, you want to get your gazillion dollar paycheck somewhere else? Then God bless you. So Le'Veon, not even for the fans or for the city or for your teammates. Well, it should be for your teammates. I take that back. Yeah, but do it for yourself. It's only going to look right. It's going to look better for you. And I understand people can say, well, Jay Reels, please, who are you to tell a player what to do? I mean, think about it. If you have players on your own team knowing that you should be there from day one because you have a contract and you're signed, then guess what? Be there. Stop thinking selfishly and doing everything on your time and that, oh, yeah, I'll be in the best shape possible like he did last year. And granted, he still had a, you know, an all-pro type year. But what do you think this is? You just turn the switch on and that's it? This is football. We all know one play, that's it. Legs, knees, quads, all that stuff could come in in an instant and your season's up in smoke. So let's just see how that unfolds. And before I get to the NFL anthem, let me just uh, a word about Coach Sperano, who died suddenly yesterday at a young age too. Was he 56, I believe, 58? I should have gotten that correct. But still, nevertheless, he was young. And um, just sad news there. We all know he was a coach of the Dolphins. Also was an interim coach there at Oakland there in 2014. Was he part of the Jet staff? As an offensive line coach, was recently the offensive line coach for the Minnesota Vikings, who was just unresponsive yesterday morning. I'm sure it was heart failure. I'm not reporting that, but uh, you would think that there was so, so that would be the casualty. And just very sad to hear. You know, pretty much on the eve of training camp. So the Vikings got to go into this training camp with heavy hearts off of the way their season ended last year in an NFC Championship game. So thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to the Sperano family. Uh, just very sad news to hear. Uh, like I said, on the pretty much on the eve of uh, NFL training camps opening up throughout the country. And then I have a solution, people. And call me crazy. But the solution to the NFL anthem situation 
that they cannot seem to resolve for whatever. I mean, you would think that they're trying to, you know, this is nuclear physics here. Now, we understand that this Anthem thing, going back to Colin Kaepernick and everything that's transpired since, that for whatever the reason, the NFL, the offices, they cannot seem to come to an agreement on what to do with these players when it comes to the National Anthem. And last week, news broke, especially after the podcast, after episode 19, broke that the Miami Dolphins were going to find any player that does not stand for the anthem. And that would also possibly lead to suspensions. So just an hour or two after that, the NFL says, well, now we're just going to hold off on making any decisions regarding the NFL anthem. You would think they're trying to reinvent the wheel here. NFL, this is the easiest solution that you could possibly have to anything. Why are you making this out to be a knockdown, drag down, 15-round fight? I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. This is all you need to do. Do what the NBA did. Because the NBA with Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, formerly Chris Jackson, played for the Denver Nuggets. Obviously, his beliefs, he didn't want to be a part of the National Anthem. But if you recall that once they... Set it straight that no, you have to be out there. Remember, during the National Anthem, I believe, Chris Jackson held the palms of his hands toward his face and he started praying. And if you're going to do that, that's fine. And they allowed that. As long as you're standing for the National Anthem, that's a mandate. Got to do it, no matter what. Well, NFL, can you do the same thing with the players? All you have to say is that they must be out of the locker room, must be standing on the sidelines during the National Anthem. You cannot sit. You cannot kneel, you cannot crouch, squat, whatever it may be. You can stand. As long as you're doing that, you're fine. So if you want to put a fist in the air, you want to put two fists in the air, you want to lock arms with your football brethren out there, you want to put your head down, you want to look up, you want to look to the left, you want to look to the right. You want to do all that, that's fine. But you must stand on that sideline during the National Anthem. And if you do not, you get the first fine, whatever that fine is. I don't know, however you want to put it. Because once you start hitting the checkbooks and their wallets, then they'll start to wisen up. I understand this may not be collectively bargained. You got to look at that too. You got to factor that in. But I'm sure that they could come to some, some sort of agreement with the players to say, hey, listen. This can't go on. It's been it's going on two years that this has been happening. The agreement is, is that if you're not going to stand for the anthem or if you're going to sit, you're getting fined twenty five thousand dollars. And if it happens a second offense, you're getting fifty. And if it happens a third, seventy five, and move on up. That's it. Go up the ladder. Go up to it's a million dollars, whatever it may be. I bet you after that third or fourth time, they may stop and think and be like, you know what? Uh uh-uh. uh, I'm tired of giving up my money. That's it. No need to suspend anybody. No need to throw flags out because that was another thing. Oh, there's going to be a, uh, a 15-yard flag. I, what, what kind of nonsense is that? NFL, why are you making this so complicated? This is why, me as a fan, I've been disgusted by this league the last couple of years because of this. Because they cannot seem to handle these situations, whether it's Deflategate, whether it's the situation with the concussions, whether it's this now with the anthem. I mean, what's next? You know, give me a break, people. I mean, 
You would think that they're, I'm serious. You would think that what the NFL is trying to do here with this anthem policy is, you know, they got to figure out how to build a rocket. Or figure out what's like the fastest way to, you know, how can we develop this new technology that we somehow, some way can't seem to comprehend or even put together. No, it's, it's either stand or pay a fine. That's it. And like I said, if they want to put hands in the air, fists, wave their hands during, throughout the whole anthem, whatever it is, that's fine. As long as you're standing, we're good. I, I don't know. As, as I'm, I'm just I'm despondent just thinking about how this thing has been dragged on for so long. And, you know, the P, and I'm not going to get into the political aspect of it, so I'm not even going to go there with that. But the thing that irks me the most is that why that now two years later that they have to put this on hold because of what the Dolphins said they were going to do to their players. They have to put this on hold. Oh, we're going to come back to this later on at a later date. And then what? They're going to come back to it. They're going to come up with a rule. And then that's going to get destroyed from pillow to post. And it's like, oh, you know what? Now we need to rethink this again. Oh, my God. (sighs) Can't make it up. I, I don't know what else to say. I really don't. Unbelievable. But let's see if they can figure it out this time around. But I just, NFL, if you're listening, anybody in the front offices, uh, the guy who mops the floor, the guy who's the, rece- the, the male or female who's a receptionist, pass this along. Because this thing is never going to go away unless you put some sort of rule. And this is the safest, the most simplest rule you can put, in, put forth toward the players, and that's it. And if it's not collectively bargained, then so what? Then let's get to it. Let's get this cracking, get on top of this so we can finalize this once and for all. Because this is just an out-and-out complete disaster. And, of course, Roger Goodell will never admit that. He's oh, we're still trying to figure this out. I mean, he's, you know, dimwit to begin with. That's right, I said it. But it's the truth. Because Goodell, you know, he can't seem to get out of his own way when it comes to public relations, so why can't he get out of this? And it's the easiest one out of all of them. Well, anyway, I understand I got to find, you know, finish up on that note, which I can't even speak right now because right now my mind's going a thousand miles an hour. My mouth's going 40,000 miles an hour. Just breathe, baby. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening to uh, me babble over the last uh, 40 or oh, 50 minutes plus here on the J Rose podcast. Uh, a couple of things I want to say before I bid adieu. First and foremost, people get the word out. Tell everybody about this podcast. Give them a heads up. Tell them to go on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, even on Spotify. I did confirm I'm on Spotify, people. So for those who have a Spotify account, just type in the J Reels Podcast. Hit subscribe. You'll get all the up-to-the-minute posts on all of my shows, my past shows, present. And not only that, even more so, people, when you subscribe, please post a rating. Leave a review that's only going to increase popularity and not only that, but also visibility for other, for my podcast with the other podcasts in the sports universe. And that's only going to increase not only just the visibility, but also the guests that I hope to get in the near future. And I can't do that without your help. So it's easy. Just go to your phone, go to your podcast app or whatever that you use to download your podcasts. Just go there, hit subscribe, leave a review. It's simple as that. It's literally going to take two minutes. So I implore you to do that. 
because again, without you guys not listening and tuning in and being supportive of this program and letting the world know about this program, then there won't be a program. I mean, I'll still be here doing it, but nobody's going to know unless uh, I get your contribution. So I beyond grateful, thankful, all of that ahead of time for uh, putting forth the word to everybody out there. Uh, obviously, you can follow me on uh, Instagram, uh, J Reels, Twitter, J Reels One, and Facebook is the J Reels Podcast. I also have an email address. Feel free to send an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I greatly appreciate that. Uh, last week, we were supposed to get Scott and Jerome on. We actually postponed it till this week because we wanted to do a trade deadline with the Mets, kind of rehash everything that's going on with this organization. So you're going to get them. Hope to record it toward the end of the week and maybe early next week. So it may not go on until the week after. But I'm working on them. And they just felt it was best to do a trade deadline because they want to see how the team's going to look after the deadline or at least when we get close to the deadline. So we can really give our perspective of this Met team moving forward. I'm also looking to get some other fans in the mix of certain teams, especially with football coming up. There's still plenty of time for that because we still got to go through training camp and obviously the exhibition season. But I'm still working on that as well as a few writers, some athletes. Again, people, it's all about the timing and getting these people on the air. So I'm certainly doing my best behind the scenes to, to bring forth the best content in relation to sports that's uh, out there. And you know I'm going to do whatever it takes because this is my passion, this is my love, talking sports. And if you couldn't get that from this episode, then I don't know. Maybe you just need to listen to it again or send it off to your friends and say, hey, do you think this guy's passionate enough? All right, I know that's shameless right now. But you get what I'm saying, people. Once again, I truly... I'm grateful and thankful for all your participation, for everything, support, listening to the podcast, spreading the word, whatever it may be. And uh, again, it certainly does not go unnoticed. So please, people, continue to do that as I will continue to produce more content. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J-Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.